0: and try to figure out how people like you and I can help.
1: Today's guest is Allison Wolf, CEO and founder at Vibrant Planet. They develop software to help improve forest management or adaptive land management, as I learned it's called in this conversation. Also, you might notice that I'm not Jason. This is Cody Sims, Jason's partner at MCJ. I did today's interview with Allison at Vibrant Planet and you'll hear me take on episodes here and there going forward. As a Californian and resident of the Western United States, Wildfires have become something I think about regularly. I personally had to evacuate my home multiple times due to severely poor air quality from nearby wildfires, luckily not due to immediate burn risk, though too many folks have unfortunately experienced that too. And I have friends who've had their homes burned. In climate circles, we talk a lot about nature-based solutions and forestry credits. This conversation mostly revolves around preserving forests. And yet, in the Western United States, we not only need to preserve our forests, we need to heal them. Allison and I have a great discussion about the state of forests in the Western United States, why wildfire severity is increasing, the roadblocks that have slowed progress on forest management, and the role that software and technology can play in unlocking collaboration. If you're curious about wildfires and their relationship to climate change, both in terms of how climate change is resulting in increased wildfire severity and how increased wildfire activity is creating feedback loops that reinforce global warming, you'll appreciate this conversation. And lastly, even in the face of some pretty dire numbers, I can't help but hear the optimism in Allison's voice about what our forests could look like in the coming centuries given proper care and maintenance today. Allison, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me, Cody. Excited to be here.
1: Well, I am so excited to learn from you. As you know, and many others know, I mostly live in California, in Southern California, and have been lucky enough to spend some of my summers up in Colorado, up in the mountains. And so knowing what's going on with our forests, particularly in the Western United States, is very personal to me and very personal to millions and tens of millions of, of people across the United States, obviously. And so would love to maybe just start, we're going to dive into your background and boy, you've been working in this space for a long time and have tons of great experience that I want to learn about and I know others do too. But I want to start by understanding generally what's going on with the state of our forests in both the United States and broadly across the world, if there's context you want to add there too.
2: Depending on where you are in the world, the story differs. In California and Western US forests and a lot of Mediterranean Europe, we're seeing obviously this huge fire in France, I mean, the 25, 30,000 acre Fire in France is a very big fire for them. It's sort of peanuts here in the US, but that's a big deal in Europe. Um, Australia obviously has these issues. So in these fire adapted ecosystems, so these are ecosystems that grew with fire and they've always had fire from lightning and had a fire interval of somewhere between five and 30 years, depending on where you are. In places like the Rockies, where it sounds like you are right now, in the high Rockies, you have more dense lush forests. Boreal is like that. Those are more like hundred year fire intervals. And when they burn, there's a lot of fuels because they've grown and they they go real big. And so in these fire adapted forests, the situation is really that Europeans and then European Americans clear cut everything. In North America, we really did play out the Lorax story and clear cut all but about 4% of forest. So we really only have 4% old growth. And it's hard to understand that because we don't really know what old growth looks like. Like we get excited about the sequoias, but that's really what you know. a lot of the Sierra looked like. We have these massive trees with very little ground cover and there's stories of John Muir riding three horses wide through them. And now you can barely walk in most forests. Like if you drive up by 80 to Tahoe, if you're a Bay Area person or up to Mammoth, if you're an LA person, you can barely get in there they're so thick and so we've got these really unresilient forests who are fighting for resources because we clear cut everything and then they all grew up at the same time so instead of having different ages different species and clumps and gaps and kind of families of trees as we read about in some of these popular books the last few years we have these really thick forests and they're unnaturally structured and they're fighting for resources so we're seeing disease take over and they're just not healthy then you add fire suppression to the mix and you get more fuels. So we've had a 100% fire suppression policy. It feels like there's tons of fires, but there's thousands of fires that we'd never hear about because they're put out within a few feet of run. There's only a few percentage of them that actually get out of control. And that's happening more and more because of fuels being so heavy in places where there didn't used to be fuels because fire used to roll through in that five to 30 year interval and clear out. Fuels and down branches and cull down the forest, killed off the babies, um, some of them, to get to this kind of natural heterogeneity and structure. So, we've basically, we're responsible for messing up the structure of the forest fundamentally for, for all these reasons. Then you add climate change to the mix, also human caused, of course, and you've got these tinder dry fuels. So you've got overfueled forests, tinder dry, unhealthy because they don't have enough water and it's hotter and you've got climate-fueled winds where you've got these pressure gradients that are bigger off deserts and driving these really crazy wind events that picks fire up, fuels ladder it up to the canopy, and then these fires move in a wall and hit towns like we see in paradise and the Dixie fire, the Calder fire that almost took out South Lake. So that, that's just sort of the new way things are happening in these fire adapted forests. In the Amazon, it's a different story where humans are clear cutting. So we're, we're deforesting there now, like we did in North America, there really isn't fire in the Amazon. It's like every 500 years you might have a little fire and it's just kind of a wet smoldering fire. So down there it's clear cutting and burning the forest to Great farmland, graze land, um, cattle feed for a global cattle industry is really the big driver and then illegal logging still. So that's a very different dynamic for why we're seeing forest
1: cover loss. In the Western forests, back before humans did all this damage, when you had old growth forests and a fire broke out, what happened then versus what happens now when you have these dense, dry forests that uh, and disease forests that exist today?
2: Yeah, so you can imagine, so if you can picture a sequoia grove or a redwood grove maybe, where you've got these really big giant trees and the the fire adapted species do all these cool things. So they self limb. So you won't see any branches down at the ground. Fir trees have that. And fir has is an advantageous species that has taken over a lot of Western US forests. So that creates ladder fuels because the branches go to the ground, but a lot of the pine species and sequoias it's really just a giant tree trunk with really thick bark so they grow this very thick armor and they, to handle fire they want fire so some of the species only their, their seeds only pop from the pie cones if you have this sort of goldilocks temperature you have this have to have this good temperature not too high because it'll sterilize the seed but this just right temperature actually allows the seed to plant. And so they really were built to handle fire. The pine cones are round to roll down the hill and spread low-intensity fire. So fire is also how carbon cycles. It's very different than a tropical forest. It's how nutrients cycle through the forests. And again, it's how the forest actually regenerates itself. It needs fire to plant its seeds.
1: Due to the type of trees that are now in the forests and the makeup of their branch structure and the density of them, when fire hits a forest today, it... Spreads like crazy. Whereas before, when you're in a grove of sequoias or redwoods, you see these sort of fire licked bark. But the forest, maybe the fires wouldn't have gone as, as wild and crazy and wouldn't have been as destructive. They were just natural parts of the life cycle of these forests.
2: Exactly. And you might see a lightning strike in a big sequoia with one of those big carve-outs, right? Like that, that's supposed to happen. That's normal. Yeah. What's happening because we have so many fuels. I mean, think about when you start a campfire, if you've got a bunch of kindling and you've got a bunch of wind and you blow on the fire, that's what we're doing in our forest. We have so much kindling in down branches and duff Needles, etc., that hasn't been cleaned from low-intensity, healthy fire for 130 years—you've got all this kindling and winds and dry fuels, and they—they're ex- literally exploding on us.
1: So, what we know, what we need to do now. Where are we in the process of starting to do the right things in terms of forest management going forward? I presume the the age of runaway capitalism—that's just clear-cutting entire forests for the logging industry—is been basically regulated away for the most part. And so now we're left with the aftermath of that and how to clean that up. What does that roadmap look like?
2: One of the things that coming into this, so i had done a lot of work on climate change in my past work. Coming into this space, this is a climate-driven, climate-related problem, but it really is a big land management problem. So even if the climate wasn't changing, we'd still have severe fire. Climate change is just speeding it up. And so there is a solution. So having worked on climate change for a long time, where sometimes the solution is ambiguous or it's policy and it's hard for individual people to really understand what do we do. This is a situation where we we do know exactly what to do. So
1: I want to underscore what you just said, because what I heard was a bit of a yes and, that it's a climate change problem and a land management problem. We've heard political circles sort of saying it's one or the other, but it's clearly both. And there need to be solutions across both sides of Uh, of the issue here.
2: Absolutely. Yes. And they're really exacerbating each other. So on the land management side, which is what we're focused on at Vibrant Planet, we need to accelerate the planning and implementation of forest treatments. And really what that looks like is we have to play the role that fire would have played over the last 130 years of fire suppression to do everything we just talked about. Call down the forest so that we've got the right amount of trees, spacing of trees, different ages of trees and species, and clear out the duff so that the seeds can plant and get rid of that kindling for the wildfire. And so there's a lot of work to do to remove fuels and really plan for forest resilience. How do we actually get in there and get back to a resilient structure? Because we we really ruined the structure of forest that would be natural. And so, unfortunately, that means a lot of mechanical thinning. So we got to go in with chainsaws and limb up trees. We have to go masticate biomass. Sometimes we have to cut trees. Mostly we need to cut small trees. And so, you know, a lot of the the timber wars and culminating with Luna and Julia Butterfly Hill sitting in Luna the environmentalists were absolutely right that we were focused too much on an economy that was built back in the 1800s. Like the American economy was built on trees and those trees went into mines and all of our towns were built from wood. I mean, everything was built from wood.
1: Isn't it amazing? The American economy built on trees in the 1900s, built on oil in the 20th century and hopefully built on a clean, renewable economy in the in the 21st century.
2: Yeah, so those big, juicy trees where we play, played out the Lorax. We have those historic photos of like 100 men sitting on a giant sequoia, which just makes our skin crawl. You know, the environmentalists shut down the industry for good reason, and we did put environmental regulations like the National Environmental Environmental Protection Act to keep that kind of cutting from happening. But we do need to pull biomass out now so because, because the forests are overfueled. And if we don't pull some trees out and some of that duff and down branches, we're going to lose the forests. And so it's a little bit of a mind twist it, and it's very different because we've, we've got our heads knocked against the wall on deforestation in a place like the Amazon or Indonesia where cutting trees really is bad. We need to leave those forests alone and they regenerate by themselves. We have to be more active in dry forests in these temperate forests and actually go in and we owe it to them and the other species in there to get that that resilient structure back so that they can make it through climate change and then ultimately help us make make it through climate change because they're playing a huge role in sucking down carbon for us.
1: Do you envision 200 years from now that we have wild sequoia and redwood groves, you know, growing all up and down the coast of California and Oregon again?
2: Yeah. The hope is, and it's so fun walking with a forest supervisor from the Forest Service. I mean, their mandate is resilience and all the ecosystem benefits of resilience, carbon sequestration, water delivery. 70% of water in the world originates in forests and forests are playing this incredible role with just water, cycling water, filtering water before it goes to ag lands and, and drinking water in cities like San Francisco or L.A., And then they regulate global weather. I mean, half of the snowpack some years in the Sierra Nevada originates in the Amazon and the atmospheric river that the forest creates itself. And then it moves up to California and rains on us and snows on us. Forests are playing this incredible role. And so I do envision it's so fun walking through a forest with a forest supervisor and talk about what could we envision 500 years from now? What should this look like? What did it used to look like? And what might it look like with climate change now? And how do we help them along? I mean, now everybody knows we're we're in the adaptation realm of climate change now. So how do we do that without over-engineering forests? You go to Europe and sometimes the forests feel unnatural there because they've done so much heavy management. What is the sweet spot between wildland and tending the wild?
1: I often hear that you look at all of the different practices of forest management all over the world. And it's often forests that are managed by indigenous peoples that have managed to treat these forests the most effectively, I guess, presumably because capitalism hasn't come in and sort of dictated poor practices uh, escalating. I'm curious if you have examples of forests anywhere in the world that you feel have been managed well.
2: Yeah, good question. One really good example is what's happening in Australia, where again fire adapted mediterranean forest type climate type generally and aboriginal fire where aboriginals are managing with fire just as indigenous peoples here in the US did for 20,000 years so an interesting story that i learned from Mike Sweeney at the nature conservancy he's the head of the california chapter in north america indigenous people and trees arrived at the same time after the ice age and from the get go, we have evidence that tribes managed with fire. And likely, the hypothesis is they were trying to remove ground cover so they could hunt more effectively between these giant trees. And so they were a big part of the fire adaptivity and how these species evolved, in addition to lightning fires, natural fires happening and creating that fire cycle that we talked about of five to 30 years. That is how our forests were managed. And there's a, there's a great book called Tending the Wild that talks about this, where we, native tribes everywhere in the world, in the Amazon, it is more of a protective thing. But, but tribes, indigenous people, we have a lot to learn from them, how we relate to nature and to think about ourselves as part of nature. The Europeans have separated ourselves. It's us versus nature. We're always trying to control it it's there for our use right instead of having a relationship with it so there's a big movement here in the US and Australia is way ahead of us where we're, where there's a lot of tribal empowerment tribes are are training people to use prescribed fire in an effective way and they are looking for more and more burn days themselves on their lands to bring back species that they need for their cultural lives and for their for their livelihoods so grasses that they still weave baskets out of berries that only sprout with low intensity fire lots of wood products that they use for building all kinds of things and so there's a big movement to really empower tribes and learn from tribes and and for us in the planning world we really want to bring a non European perspective on land management into the system. And tribes are always, of course, a part of the planning process where we're working too.
1: You know, you talked a little bit about the positive feedback loops that we could see in 300, 500 years as we help the forests that we've damaged regain their strength, even in the face of climate change, as, as we help them sort of deal with living in an adapted environment. There are also, unfortunately, quite a few negative feedback loops that are happening because of the damage that we have brought onto our forests. And I'm wondering, the one that scares me the most, there are so many, whether it's you know water feedback loops or human health in particulate matter, but I think the one that scares me the most is, at least in the Western US, seeing our forests in some cases actually turn from a carbon sink into a net emitter of carbon. And I wonder if there's something, some you could share there about the the actual co2 that gets released from wildfires and how that is unfortunately potentially fueling greater climate change.
2: Yes, we are creating a new positive feedback loop in climate change with these massive releases. And you can imagine in low intensity fire where the forest is being regenerated and cleaned, there's very little release in that kind of good fire. In these big fires where you where the canopy goes where the whole tree is dying. And then the, the soil where most of the carbon is stored underground, right? Like especially in dry forests, most of the tree is underground. They have these deep root systems because we don't have as much water here. So it's massive root systems. And we're turning that soil where all that carbon is held into dust that blows away and then snow and rain comes and we have these big landslides you know, that happen afterwards where we're losing that soil carbon. The emissions are massive. And we're losing that permanent carbon storage because what's happening is with severe fire and frying the seed stock and killing off trees, we don't have the mother trees to reseed an area. And I can get into a little bit about how hard reforestation efforts are right now or trying to help improve that. So we're losing forests. So forests are converting in 2020's fires, about 1.3 million of the 6 million acres that burned will not come back unless we actively intervene. And so they're converting to shrub and grass, which does not store as much carbon as these giant root systems. So it is a big problem. And it is it is a self-reinforcing spiral. And just to give you a sense, in California, between 1985 and, and 2021, California lost almost 7% of its tree cover. And that's becoming exponential. So within the next 10 to 20 years, California won't have many forests left, and a big percentage of that will not grow back because of this really unnaturally high severity due to the fuel loads and climate change. So it's it is catastrophic. It's what it's what propelled me into this space. Somebody had to do something about this to to speed and scale restoration. It's so frustrating to watch this happen when we know what to do. We just have to do it faster and with more information.
1: Maybe hitting on California. I know in the last few years, primarily I think due to settlements from PG and E from some of the fires that broke out at the end of the last decade, there is now quite a bit of state funding going into forestry management, significant billions of dollars in a way that wasn't there previously. Maybe start to talk about how are both state governments and federal governments starting to go on the offensive here to fund appropriate measures and how 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 much more do we need beyond what's been committed so far?
2: So to give you a sense of scale, Blue Forest Conservation, who's one of our partners, amazing, they created the Forest Resilience Bond where we were a partner with them and Nature Conservancy in the North Yuba, which is a key tributary to the Sacramento Delta, to do a sort of exemplary new workflow for forest management planning. They estimate that the state of California needs $58 billion deployed within the next decade to restore forests at the pace and scale that is needed to keep us from losing them. California is sort of the canary in the coal mine. It is this kind of perfect storm of land management and overfilled forests and climate change is happening faster here than anywhere else. But the rest of the West is right behind California and having the same trends, Europe and the other places we talked about. So there's there's a huge need to do these restoration treatments faster.
1: And what amount of funding is has currently been committed?
2: They passed $1.5 billion a few months ago that is being deployed. They, there's another $1.2 billion in California from, from Newsom's budget um, that's proposed this year. We expect that to go through. Then the, the National Forest Service has allocated about $50 billion out of the infrastructure bill to put towards building wildfire resilience in Western states. So there is a lot of money moving, but that's not enough, right? So California is getting... I'm not sure what budget they're getting yet from the infrastructure bill allotment, but let's say they get maybe a billion or two. So we're at four billion and and restoring right now because of how hard the planning and implementation is. We're only restoring about 100,000 acres a year, and we only have 10 years to restore about 22 million acres. So the math isn't
1: working. And does most of this go to reforestation efforts or does most of it go to thinning and um, land management efforts?
2: Most of it goes to what they call shovel ready projects. So already planned, ready for implementation and implementation is that mechanical thinning prescribed fire where we can do it safely and those kinds of treatments. There is a little bit of an allotment for reforestation efforts.
1: Given that, maybe let, let's talk about how forests are maintained today. So who are, there's this money coming in, state money, federal money, who are the stakeholders in choosing what projects should happen? How do projects get to become shovel ready? And what does that whole process entail?
2: Yeah. So that has changed a lot in the last several years where, it used to work for the Forest Service, which is about on average 60% of Western land and other federal lands, BLM, federal parks, then state lands, state parks, and private landowners to do their own thing. And so we've worked in sort of in a siloed way where everybody's kind of got their own data sets and, and scientists and foresters that serve them. What's changed is because we've got that we're in this new era of megafire. Fires are burning across jurisdictions in a way that they didn't before, and we can't get them out. And so that is forcing a new era of collaborative planning. That's really hard if people have different interests in the land, timber versus maybe carbon value versus you know water benefits, those kinds of things. And so it's very hard to get to consensus. So we've been shoved into a consensus-driven process with no tools to do it well, and. Part of the problem, too, is the planning process for a large landscape. So now now, that, now everyone's moved to, okay, we have to do collaborative planning. We have to have a shared vision and objectives for a large area. And we have to together fundamentally change fire behavior and tree mortality behavior. So we have to work together. There's no way to get to agreement. It's hard to see each other's perspectives if you don't have really good data turned into useful information to help people see different perspectives. That planning process right now is really consultant-driven. Sometimes internal forest service people or, or labs act as consultants, NGOs act as consultants. There's private companies that get hired to work on the behalf of a what's called a collaborative, which is a group of jurisdictions and other stakeholders that are looking out for owl, spotted owl habitat or other habitat water issues, other key issues coming together to get to this consensus driven plan and that can take 2 to 10 years half of that time frame is collecting and aggregating and normalizing data to create just one scenario versus a no action scenario where in California in 10 years everything burns like that's always the no action scenario so and then often the person that has been hired by the forest service or whoever else isn't trusted by an NGO looking out for a spotted owl habitat for example. And so they just sort of wait until the plan comes out, goes into the environmental reg process, and then they sue and stop the project and then nothing happens. So it's an incredibly broken system right now. And while we're in these 10-year planning processes, places are burning up. So then you've spent $2 million on consultants to create a plan that is no longer relevant. There was that that was really the impetus is I saw an opportunity to sort of modernize how this happens and really bring sophisticated data engineering, data visualization, user-friendly design of a of a product to help different groups with different perspectives actually collaborate effectively and get to consensus faster with better science, better information uh, to to make sure they have they're they're making more informed decisions.
1: A simplistic question that probably does not have a simple answer, but if I'm, I mean, obviously biodiversity is incredibly important and for for thriving forests, but if I am focused on maintaining the habitat of a certain animal species, and it's obvious that if forest practices aren't dealt with, regardless of restoring that, maintaining the habitat, the habitat's going to burn up in the next decade, how do I continue to justify blocking a project?
2: Yeah. It's a, it's a good question, and it's happening less and less because of that. I have, just in the few years I've been in this space, I've watched a congealing of perspective and an agreement that we have to remove these blocks. But there is still fear of big timber coming back. And you can imagine under the Trump administration, there was a lot of fear where there was talk of removing the National Environmental Protection Act and all the things that safeguard things like biodiversity and just in a blanket way open forests up to, to big logging, that we can pave forests. We can we can mow down the forests and sure there will be less fire, but then we lose all of those services of water delivery, biodiversity habitat, which people forget we're dependent on having other species in the world <laughs> for our own survival and carbon sequestration. And so we lose all the services if we pave the forest and under different administrations that's proposed sometimes without any regard to the the ecosystem services side of things.
1: Allison, you have an extensive background working in both environmental and sustainability issues and just general impact areas for many large companies. And if I understand correctly, Vibrant Planet, which is this current business you're building for forest land management kind of morphed out of a consulting business that also called Vibrant Planet that you ran for many years working with large companies on their sustainability initiatives. Maybe give us a bit on your background, the path you took. I find it fascinating like you were at Netflix back when Netflix was mailing DVDs around, right? So you've you started in the early tech world and then have moved into sustainability, spent a good chunk of your career there and now have taken that knowledge and turned it or turning it into a software platform. Maybe walk us through that journey. We get a sense of how you've arrived at this problem that you're solving today.
2: I really started my career in tech as a young one at Netflix. And um I had been in some branding and design firms before that. So I, I was hired to as a marketing manager at Netflix to run brand and marketing. And then got really involved in user experience design of the product and started to get into weekly product testing to figure out, you know, how do you get people to click on what you want them to click on. Launched the first personalization platform that was the preceded Amazon and some of those things. So it was really fun and lots of good learning. And that has stayed with me. Design has become a very big part of my life all along, like on, on the on the rest of my journey. After Netflix, I went to a consulting firm called Sy Partners that works with CEOs and leadership teams on vision, setting vision, big companies, you know, three hundred thousand employees worldwide, kind of situation where a CEO needs to set a new vision and then and then really culture change around how do you enable everybody to see their role in that new direction. While I was there, I got very passionate about climate change, mostly from reading books, going to hear people like Bill McDonough and Paul Hawkins speak at TED or other conferences like that. And I got to the point where I couldn't help companies in retail when their vision was, you know, really selling more shit in the world. I couldn't help them anymore. And I had sort of a calling to go help the Bill McDonough's and Paul Hawkins of the world scale like crazy and help the world see where we need to head and really do culture change around that. And then also started to think about how can we help these big global platforms like eBay, Google, Facebook, how do we tilt them towards good? How do we make them forces for good in the world? So that was really what I set my sights on. And for 20 years, that was my consulting business. It was called Vibrant Planet. And uh, and I'm very lucky to have worked on a lot of different leaders on a lot of different problems and a lot of climate change work. So I helped with some of the foundational sustainability strategies and partnerships and implementation at all three of those companies. And a lot of that has spawned net zero programs and things like that helped with data for good launches and that kind of thing. I also then got pulled into philanthropic and impact investing strategy work with some of the founding families. One of those families lives in Truckee and wanted to maybe think about a center like a Rocky Mountain Institute that could take on something important. And we looked at a lot of different topics, a lot of them climate focused. And then the big 2018 fires hit when I was doing that work. And as I was on a listening tour over and over again in the community and then globally, we had Australian fires and others, Portugal burned. I started to just ask a lot about, what. tell me about this fire problem. What is the actual intersection between land management and climate change and what can be done about this, if anything? And at the same time, I was working with Paul Hawken to help launch Drawdown when the book came out and was learning a lot about nature-based climate solutions in the mix. And I'd been part of renewable energy and the kind of tipping point we had reached there. And I was getting increasingly passionate about, okay, how are we going to pull all this carbon down now and got really excited about the role nature-based solutions are going to play both across ag and forests. So I was doing work in that space. And as these fires are hitting, and I was starting to see how bad we are at looking at whole systems and how the regenerative ag movement and ag in general doesn't realize what's coming towards them from up the hill with forest burning. If we don't have any forests, California does not have the ability to produce 13% of global ag and the regenerative ag movement, if they don't have water, like the problem, right? So I just started to see this really big systems problem and catastrophic failure as I started to learn about the fire problem and then saw this need for a tech platform to speed and scale the planning side and to consistently and also standardize planning so that we can weigh trade-offs more effectively in an apples to apples way. And then monitor, are we winning? Are we actually moving communities and landscapes to resilience so that they can store carbon, deliver clean water, clean up the air? We all choked on 600 ppm smoke for a long time last summer so anyway just providing all the services biodiversity left the family to create sort of conversation space and i just had another calling in my life and just said i gotta go build a solution and had a lot of people along the way in the natural resource management and science world say how do you get the people that are building ad platforms like facebook to focus on climate solutions Can you go rally some of those people? Because it became really clear that the data engineering to actually get a tree and house level view of the world and aggregating all this biodiversity, water, and other data, carbon data—that's really, really sophisticated data engineering that can't. It's it's really not possible inside some of the agencies that have historically done this kind of science work, and so we really needed to pair science and the hard work of land management planning and implementation, that knowledge with tech and ground really rocks our people in the tech sector in what needs to happen on the ground to build a solution, which is what we've done.
1: Fantastic. And so you went out and sort of did this customer discovery and decided you needed to build a tech solution. What problems did you uncover that tech needed to solve?
2: From a data perspective, so like I said, the, the planning process can take up to 10 years for these larger landscapes where you've got multiple stakeholders working together. We don't have 10 years to get to a plan that might get sued. So there was a big need for collaboration. The data, um, and, and like I said, half of that time frame is aggregating data that's all siloed. There's no standardizations. You can't actually weigh trade-offs of different types of treatments or intensities of treatments in a apples to apples way. So that was a problem. The data that was available for vegetation doesn't downscale. So we only had like USGS data that's 30 meters. You can't downscale that to make tree and house level decisions. So there was this massive data gap that ideally government would be filling, but they haven't yet. And the need to normalize that kind of tree level view of the world with carbon, water, and other types of data that can then be put into a collaborative management system and and the ability using the power of tech and the cloud to be able to run as many treatment scenarios as you want. So like I said, in the kind of paper-based planning process that happens today, you might have one or two alternative treatment types and a do nothing scenario that shows everything burn. And that's all you got. So with our system, I saw a real need to be able to weigh lots of different trade-offs of lots of different options, model them out 30 years. How might this treatment fare in fire probability and climate change 30 years from now? What could this look like to inform the decisions we make today? And none of that existed. So really tough data engineering have to have exemplary product management and product design. That's where the design ethos comes in for me to make it accessible. We're basically democratizing data um, for lots and lots and lots of users.
1: And where do you get the tree and property level data if USGS doesn't provide it?
2: So we are building it. So we have an incredible data engineering team. And the way we do that is we have an algorithm that we have tuned to map trees, we pull in publicly available LIDAR that is basically a picture, it's a snapshot in time. So a state like California has relatively spotty LIDAR that's been taken at different points in time and lots of fire and tree mortality has happened since then. So what we do is pull in that LIDAR, train our algorithms and that LIDAR gives you a needle level view and lots of other pieces of like topography and and, and other parameters. And then we create what we call synthetic LIDAR using satellite data pushing that into the algorithm. And then the the algorithm allows us to to get to a quite, it's, it's basically a tree level view where you can see tree crowns where there wasn't LIDAR. And so that gives us this tree level view. So one of our first projects was in the Tahoe Basin where the Calder Fire burned last summer. We had just started that project and we, we were tuning our data building machine to get that synthetic LIDAR. We were able to point our data development machine at that burn scar and get a tree little view of the burn scar so that helps with the planning now in the basin because that's a bit of a reset button so now we get to envision what do we want to have grow back there and get some of the original species of tahoe back sugar pines etc and then how does that change priority around south lake tahoe tahoe city incline village right so how do we prioritize treatment plans around the other areas so that that capability of current data is really, really critical and, and was one of the big gaps in the space.
1: So in that Caldor Fire Burn Scar project, that's becomes a bit more of a get the the land cleared so that so that you can start to do a, a reforestation project. But in a project where you're taking an existing dense diseased forest that is at high fire risk for the future, what I'm hearing you say is the software allows the consultants that work for each of these agencies, whether it's the National Forest Service, whether it's a a state-owned agency, whether it's a local landowner, there may be overlap over an at-risk area. It allows them to collaborate together on what the planning process for that plot of land ought to be, and then allows them to bring in stakeholders that may bring risk to their projects in terms of getting them certified and permitted around Biodiversity stakeholders, water rights stakeholders, et cetera, so that they can all see. What, you know, if if we di- if we pursued this forest in X way or in Y way, here's what the future land would look like, and here's what this might do to some of these other considerations. Am I loosely understanding this?
2: Spot on. So, just to back that up, the Tahoe Basin project, for example is a community wildfire protection plan update. So the fire districts every two years in California have to do an updated risk mitigation plan for wildfire. So we are in support of that, helping with making sure power lines aren't hitting trees and those kinds of defensible space. And then it's that on steroids because we are helping the other stakeholders, the Forest Service that runs the Tahoe Basin, the state parks, and the folks that look after the lake health and watershed health, all of all of those other stakeholders can think about broader forest resilience to change fire behavior around all the towns around tahoe uh, effectively and really put those strategic acres where the walls of fire can start on the table because the system values the ecosystem services that the the wildland around these towns is providing so it really puts those acres on the table strategically and that's where they can envision 30 years out with our modeling. What do we want this place to look like? And share those plans and really see where do we have consensus? Where do, where does the group that's looking out for the species habitat in the area actually agree with a CAL FIRE unit chief? And they've never been able to see that before. So they can overlay plans, say, oh, we actually agree on 60% of this 300,000 acre landscape. Let's get to permit. And the Folks looking out for owl, owl habitat won't sue because they're like, yeah, I'm on board. <laughs> so the whole platform is like, how do we get to plan an implementation fast? And then it turns into a monitoring system because we have current conditions data that monitors treatment progress, calculates the ecosystem benefit of that progress and also unplanned disturbances. Another fire will likely burn in while this while this treatment is happening. So just really understanding current conditions and then being able to adaptively reprioritize based on what we're learning from treatments and answering this question, are we winning or unplanned fire or mortality? From a
1: product perspective, are each of these stakeholders logging in and actors in your product and are each of them paying you as paid customers? Or do you have some kind of Uber project manager who is getting their inputs on clipboard and then inputting them into the software and is also the one sort of paying you for the product
2: a little bit of both okay so right now there are sort of block grant type grant systems coming out of natural resources agency department of conservation cal fire that go to this collaborative planning process so an ngo or a state conservancy will apply for that money and then the way we sell is basically a landscape landscape subscription. So it's a software as a service model annual subscription to do initial data development. And then the initial scenario building get to plan. And then it becomes their monitoring and adaptive planning system. So that's really how it works. But we've had some one-off, like a forest supervisor and a fuels team being a customer for a whole forest, a million acres. Um, we've had small groups, grab licenses, like along the Truckee watershed, which is the outlet of Lake Tahoe down to Reno and the Paiute tribe land, who is just running a bunch of little collaboratives using licenses, sort of one-off licenses to look at small areas along that watershed. So it's um, we're still, we're really early. We, we launched last September, so we're, it hasn't really been out for a year. And we're in learn and adapt mode ourselves to figure out how do people want to use this? How do we package it? how do we price it? So we're, we're very much in, in super fast learning mode right now.
1: Are there market incentives as well at play here, You know whether it's around the voluntary carbon markets or the like that also are pushing more actors to want to follow these practices? I mean, it sounds like we're in crisis mode more than keep everything in harmony mode, but I'm curious how the evolution of forestry carbon credits and whatnot also factors into wildfire resiliency.
2: Good tee up. Big push for us is to build out tools now. We have a design for a tool set that will help automate what is also a PDF Excel spreadsheet driven process to plan forest carbon projects. We have recently brought on board a scientist named Dr. Catherine Duffy, who was hired 10 years ago by National Forest Foundation, which is the nonprofit arm of the Forest Service, that does a lot of work moving private capital for water, like Coca-Cola, beer companies to forest restoration projects. In fact, they were a big part of the North Yuba project that I that I mentioned earlier, moving water money to the ground for forest treatments. And so they commissioned Catherine to create a carbon methodology for fire adapted forests, which just got submitted last week to VERA to become a VERA standard. And so, and then Vibrant Planet is building a tool set For project developers that want to optimize their land management plans for carbon finance, all in the name of what we talked about earlier, we know California needs about $58 billion of finance to actually increase the pace and scale of restoration and get that restoration done in time. We've got a few billion dollars. We have no choice but to unlock private markets to get this work done. And you don't tend to forest once. These forests have to be tended like the native tribes did for for 20,000 years. Over time, we can move to more prescribed fire once we get the forest back into a resilient state where it can take fire again. We'll be managing more and more with with prescribed fire like the tribes did. but it's costly. And so we're gonna ha- we have to have a long we have to have an ongoing massive budget for forest tending. So we have to unlock private finance. We come to the carbon market with a lot of skepticism as I'm sure you do too. Forest carbon has, has been very difficult and wrought with politics, and it can create a lot of bad incentives to keep polluting. We come in eyes wide open, but we feel like it is sort of a necessary evil, if you will. And so we're working very hard to do it right and really facilitate that in these fire-adapted forests.
1: And I'd love to hear for your business as well, Been. Building this as a software company for a couple years now, you've funded it most recently with a sizable seed round. Maybe share a little bit about how you're capitalizing the company and what your plans are on that side of things going forward, too.
2: Yeah, so we have raised about 17 million to date. We did an announcement that bundled a sort of round last summer, a round we just did, which was an equity round, into one big announcement. We have some really interesting funders behind us that we're very proud of, folks like Earthshot that have John Doerr and Lloyd Powell Jobs and some other great people behind them, Grantham Foundation, which is one of the biggest climate funders in the world, new folks like Bailey Ventures that funded things like Thrive Market, and Ecosystem Integrity Fund, one of the partners is a forester trained in Yale and operated as a forester. And it's been very validating to have him say, I've been looking for this for 15 years, <laughs> So we're really proud of the funders, we've got a really supportive group behind us of climate tech and natural resource oriented folks. And so yes, we are a venture funded SaaS company right now. In the future, we've got a lot of downstream market opportunities, like unlocking carbon markets. So if we can get the project supply built through our SaaS model, and then we can help facilitate carbon finance through a platform. That we will build once there is enough supply and take a piece of that transaction revenue, that becomes a really interesting business. There's also downstream biomass markets. There's a lot of water money, biodiversity money is coming. Um, workforce, like can we help match projects to qualified workforce and create sort of a gig economy for restoration? So there's all kinds of downstream market plays for us that that investors are excited about. In the meantime, we're, you know, we're we're in a very hard business. We're mostly B2G or selling to customers that get government funding to do restoration work. That's a very hard, slow flywheel. And it is like we're turning the crank. We're getting the proofs of concept landscape by landscape and telling the stories of impact. And the good news is the flywheel is turning. And we have a shot at becoming sort of the standard system for land management and monitoring and really standardizing how that happens with, with standardized data and trade-off weighing and resilience frameworks. And what I get excited about is ultimately we can help answer the question of, is this community, is this landscape resilient? And what does that mean in terms of carbon, water, biodiversity benefit and avoided losses for insurance companies and all kinds of things. So we can really start shaping this idea of of resilience.
1: And I know for many people, wildfires is their personal trigger for why they start to care about climate change. For many of us who live in the western United States, it's become a very unfortunate reality every year that is in our face and makes living harder. It makes all of us question, do we want to keep living here? It makes all of us question what's going to happen to our property values? What what are my children going to experience in terms of air quality? And so I have to imagine there are a lot of people listening to this today that are personally triggered. And a lot of listeners at MCJ are very talented people in the technology industry or other parts of the, the climate ecosystem that are wanting to come in and contribute their personal skills. So for anyone listening today who is interested in you know, what you're building at Vibrant Planet, where are you looking for help right now?
2: Yeah. So we are hiring ahead of sales. So really to help us systematize a bunch of our trusted former insiders from Forest Service, BLM, EPA have done a great job getting us to where we are, improving ourselves and, and getting the platform seated. Now we have to systematize that and think about customer success and operationalizing sales. So, if anyone's interested, I am all ears and looking for someone really great, ideally, that has some government background. The other thing too, is we're also looking for non-dilutive capital opportunities. In fact, I listened to your podcast with with Joel um, from Climate Finance Solutions. I had a call with him this morning. He's mapping the non-dilutive space for us. So thank you for that, MCJ. Really excited about where can we get, we're in a high risk, hard business. And so where can we get capital to help us build out an MVP product for the MRV system for carbon? The measurement, reporting, verification system, and can we make that a public good through a grant as well? And so we're looking for those kind of non-dilutive capital opportunities. That's another area. If the community has ideas for us, pockets of government funding, private foundation funding that is wanting is looking for high-risk solutions to climate and nature-based climate solutions. We're all ears,
1: Allison. Anything I should should have asked that I didn't ask?
2: A million things. This is a complex big hairy audacious thing we've taken on i think the the thing i want to leave people with fire is personally affecting so many of us and i want people to know that there's hope but again that we can do something about this but we as a company and others in the space that are thinking about biomass industries and doing the work of getting fuels out of these forests and helping to restructure them like earthforce io and others we need a fast focused set of funders and help funding pilots to, to prove that this stuff works. We don't have time for the slow, prove yourself over time. You know, we, we don't have time for that. So this is, a, this is a high risk, like jump in with both feet, all hands on deck moment, or really do face catastrophic failure, but we know what to do. We just have to do it at speed and scale. John Doerr right. This is one area where we gotta go very, very fast.
1: Well, I, I admire and appreciate the spirit of optimism that we can do this. We just we just have to decide we want to do it collectively. You know, certainly that's something MCJ stands for is trying to help uh, shine the light on what these solutions can be. So, Allison, I super appreciate you coming on today and sharing more about what you're building and the impact it can have on not just those of us in California, but all of us due to the um, importance of the Western forests and Mediterranean-style forests across the world to food, water, and livelihood, both of humans and all of the biodiversity that lives within them. So thanks for your time today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. And it is true, forests are a big part of sustaining us, so we, we've got to get after it.
1: Fantastic. Thanks, Allison.
2: Thank you for having me. Fun conversation.
0: Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show... Please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you.